The Fanboy, episode 118. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 118 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I gotta tell you, if you own any stock in Warner Media, you're doing quite well today. <laughs> I mean, did you did you guys hear? This is what we have to start the show off with, because yesterday there was a gigantic announcement made, and it ties into something I've been talking about here on the show for basically the last four or five episodes now. So Warner Media announced yesterday that all of Warner Brothers 2021 planned theatrical releases are going to be arriving the same day on HBO Max. That's right. Just like Wonder Woman 1984 is going to be doing in a few weeks time, that's going to basically set the model for the next year on HBO Max, where all of these Warner Brothers releases will arrive in theaters and on Max the same day. And then HBO Max will have exclusive streaming rights to that movie for the entire month. So for that whole first month, you could either see it in theaters or you could see it at home on HBO Max. And then after that month, the movie will come off of the platform and then be available through more traditional means. But folks, what this basically amounts to is every three weeks or so, HBO Max is going to have a brand new movie, a brand new Warner Brothers film that at one point was prepped for a theatrical release is now going to be coming exclusively to HBO Max. And you know what? That makes me think about something, right? You know, there's a question people ask, right? What's in a name? What's in a name? And I feel like after all these years, we just say HBO without thinking about what HBO even means, right? It's just, it's, it's become its own entity, its own brand, its own thing. But HBO Max stands for Home Box Office. The entire mantra of what HBO was supposed to do, what elevated it above regular cable channels, what made it such a big deal and, 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 and inspired people to pay a premium pay a premium monthly fee for the service for these last, I don't know, 30 years, is that it is essentially bringing the theater to your home. It's the home box office. And you know what? HBO Max is essentially using its original brand identity, its original purpose for existing, its original sales pitch is now basically... <clears throat> The best way to describe how they're pushing the entire movie industry into the future. Because when they say home box office in 2021, they absolutely mean that. And you know what? <clears throat> we need to talk about the movies coming out. Because you may not be you know, up on all this stuff, and thankfully I am. So <laughs> as part of the things that are arriving in 2021, all right, I'm going to look at my phone here. For those of you who are watching on the YouTube show, I don't think this looks all that professional but it's the best I could do for right now. So bear with me. But look, <clears throat> some of the names of the films that are coming out. All right. We're talking Godzilla versus Kong. Okay. We're talking the new Mortal Kombat movie. We're talking The Conjuring, the next Conjuring movie, which my wife and I are crazy ecstatic about. We're talking about In the Heights, Space Jam, The Suicide Squad, Dune, 
Matrix 4. I mean, there's a lot more than that, but those are the ones that make my head explode. Okay? There are a lot of huge movies coming exclusively for the first month to HBO Max. Now, what what does this make me think? What you know, first of all, <clears throat> this all has to circle back to what we were talking about last week. Because remember, well, I see I shouldn't say last week, I should say two weeks ago when we had the last new episode of the show. On the last show, I got a lot of questions because that was in the immediate aftermath of the Wonder Woman 1984 announcement. And there was a lot of questions about, well, <clears throat> how does this basically make business sense for HBO Max? You know, how, how does this work? Instead of Warner Brothers getting all of this amazing box office money, now it's coming free to a streamer. So what's it going to do? And from there, I went into a whole... You know, tirade about things called ancillary benefits, things that, you know, aren't very obvious, but they help the overall business that you're trying to build. There's the little things that you can't necessarily see with your own eyes, but that help the business immeasurably. So with that in mind, one of the things that I think that this is going to achieve rather ingeniously is nobody's going to be canceling their subscription. This guarantees practically that a lot of the folks who are going to plop down their first dollars this month to get HBO Max so that they could see Wonder Woman 1984, or maybe they're just going to get a free month, which I think is crazy. You really should just not offer the free month HBO. Take my word for it. You're going to anyway. Um, but what this means is if you know that there's going to be another world premiere Warner Brothers picture arriving on HBO Max basically every month in, in within three to four weeks of each other, that's going to essentially motivate you to keep the service. While you may have thought, okay, I'll just get it for one month and I'll check it out and I'll get to see Wonder Woman 84. As soon as you realize, oh, wait a minute, having HBO Max basically means I have a movie theater at home because all of these movies that I would normally have to leave the house and pay premium prices for and go to a movie theater to see, I could see on my couch. So if you ask me, it's a rather genius play to have all of these films arriving in rapid succession, almost on a monthly release model, exclusively on HBO Max. That is a good way to make sure that all these people who are going to try it out in the next few weeks, keep it for an entire year. And you're going to get 15 bucks a month from each of those people all year. And guess what? Those people were unlikely to go to a movie every single month. But they're going to have your streamer every single month for that $15. So in, in an odd way, like... It secures a lot of steady cash flow, and I feel like it sets them above and beyond all the other streamers, because now anyone else who tries this is just going to look like they're copying Warner Brothers. It's going to look like they're trying to catch up to HBO Max, which is funny, right? Because HBO Max, for the longest time, since its debut, people have been dogging on it. People have been saying, oh, it launched to weak numbers. They screwed the whole thing up. It wasn't available on, on Fire Sticks or Roku's. It was, you know, a lot of people chastised the launch of HBO Max. And heck, I mean, I even thought it was kind of ridiculous that they didn't do a better job of marketing the fact that, like, 
HBO Now and HBO Go and HBO Max are all essentially the same price coming from the same place, but HBO Max has all this other stuff. You have a lot of people who didn't even seem to get that, didn't even seem to know that with all of these different variations of HBO flying around. So HBO Max didn't really have the strongest launch in the world. And it's been kind of like the little engine that could behind all of the titans, like Netflix and Disney Plus and Prime Video and Hulu and all those other ones. But now they're about to move to the forefront by literally becoming the embodiment of the home box office. And it's going to it's going to make them the premium option out of all the streamers. Because all the other streamers have the same kind of typical releases. You're going to have some TV shows. You're going to have a couple of made directly for this streamer movies. And then you're going to get theatrical movies a month or two after they arrive in theaters. HBO Max is going to give you fresh, brand new, exciting, buzzworthy blockbusters the day they arrive in theaters. You cannot tell me that that doesn't change the impression of what this streamer is and can and will be. So this is gigantic news. And I mean, we're living in a very different time now, movie fans. We're living in a time now where these are the kinds of decisions that the studios have to make. Isn't it nuts? And before I move into the next subject, I should add that HBO Max seems to have just heard me <laughs> because I just checked. I just checked if there was anything else about this story that I should mention before I move on. And as it turns out, they did just announce as part of this whole big thing. By the way, I'm, re I'm actually recording this on Thursday. So the news happened like an hour ago. But they just announced that the free trial is indeed being abolished. Isn't that hilarious? HBO Max will not be doing the free, the, 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 the seven day free trial they were offering and they're cutting it off three weeks before Wonder, before Wonder Woman 84 comes out. So it looks like they heard my suggestion. So you're very welcome, Jason Kalar. You're very welcome, all the people there at Warner Media. Uh, Toby Emmerich, you can call me later and we can discuss. You're welcome for my brilliant idea. But yes, thank goodness you cut the free trial because this is about to be how Warner Brothers runs away with a ton of money at a time when everyone was worried about like, what does this mean without releasing Wonder Woman 84 into, into, the, into theaters? You know, they're, they're giving up everything. They're giving up the whole house. This is an insane play. Well, here we are now. Uh, does it look insane to you anymore? Does it look crazy to you anymore? I don't think so. And now I'm going to dive into some stuff that you guys asked me to discuss, because truth be told, aside from this uh, Warner Brothers throwing the entire kitchen sink onto HBO Max news, aside from that, there's not a ton this week to talk about. There's, it, it's been pretty ho-hum in the news department. So I'm going to get to some of the topics that y'all asked for. So this first one came to me from Twitter, from Bat of Gotham. Bat of Gotham asked... Should a theatrically released Batman movie be R-rated? Well, Bat of Gotham, uh, that, this is something that I've thought about a lot. Uh, early on in the run of this show, somewhere in the first, I don't know, 30 episodes of this show, one of the first things I discussed in long form was this idea of, is it okay that we take these characters and intellectual properties 
that were originally created to capture the minds and hearts and imaginations of children, is it okay to take those kinds of properties and, and characters and mythologies and adapt them in such a way that they're only that they can only really be enjoyed by an adult? You know, adapt them in such a way that it actually excludes the original target demographic of that property. You know, because that's something that's been going on a lot. With the explosion of geek culture in the last 20 years, where the Comic-Con crowd became the cool kids all of a sudden, one of the things that you know, has been going on is all of these properties, all of these TV shows and characters and comics and video games and things that at one point or other were originally aimed towards kids have now been turned into something that is entertainment for 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. And it's it's just kind of the norm for everyone. And I've kind of wondered, like, you know, is that <clears throat> is that weird? Or is that like a betrayal in some sort of way? You know, considering these characters and things were meant for kids, is it weird now to adapt them in such a way that only grown-ups can dig them? And, you know... One thing that's changed since I last spoke about this back in 2017, one thing that's changed is the multiverse has arrived. All of these different ways of enjoying your entertainment have arrived through the streaming services. And with that sort of, you know, the way that impacts things for me is there will be a version of these characters for everyone, right? There will be cartoons of Batman. There will be things that kids can check out. So in theory, making an R-rated Batman movie is not the end of the world. You know, a few years ago, it felt like it because I was like, well, you know what? If this is going to be the one mainstream depiction of the character, it feels kind of weird to basically go, hey, kids, you can't watch this. This is too bloody and too violent and too intense. Uh, so you're not allowed to watch a Batman movie. You know, like that, that sounds, that feels wrong, even just saying it. But at a time now, where we're going to have multiple versions of these characters. We have different Flashes running around and different Superman flying around and different Jokers committing crimes and different Gothams. You know, we're in a place now where, in theory, you can have your cake and eat it too. Because, yeah, you can have like an R-rated Elseworlds Batman tale. Who knows? Maybe even Matt Reeves' film will ultimately end up R-rated. I mean, that first teaser was pretty... Um, dark and violent and menacing it looked like a seven it looked like not a seven it looked like seven it looked like a david fincher movie it doesn't look like one i'm going to be racing my kids to the theaters to go see or at this rate race them to the couch to go see um but yeah so so yeah the, like the reeves batman might end up rated r but that doesn't mean that they can't release another... They could release a Lego Batman a few months later and that, that'll be for the kids. Or a year later, they could release a Justice League Mortal type of movie that has nothing to do with the Matt Reeves Batman movies and introduces a more family-friendly Batman. You know, we're in this weird place now where the studio seems perfectly comfortable. And not just one studio, all the studios. Marvel's doing the same thing. We're entering a place now where the creators, for the people who distribute all these types of movies and TV shows, they're basically saying, take your pick. 
There's going to be lots of versions of these characters for you to enjoy. If you don't like the one that's in theaters, go to Disney Plus, go to HBO Max, go to Netflix, whatever it is. You know, you will find another version of that character that'll work for the kids or work for a different demographic entirely. You know, so that's kind of like the the new wide open frontier we're in. So if you'd asked me a few years ago. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you can go find, I don't know if, if they took it down, but over on the old podcast, over on Los Fanboys at Latino Review or LRM Online, whatever it is they're calling themselves nowadays, uh, I remember we, we, we tackled this in long form and I took a pretty hard stance against it. Yeah, this was actually, I remember it because it was about two weeks before Batman v Superman arrived in theaters when they announced that there was going to be an ultimate edition that was rated R that would be coming out a few weeks afterward. Remember all that weird messaging, by the way? I mean, that when I think back on that whole episode and that whole chapter in Warner Brothers uh, DC saga, there's so many baffling moments where you just want to go, who thought this was a good idea? You know, who thought, hey, fans, guess what? This movie that we've been promoting since last year and it's this huge deal that leads to our Justice League movie. Yeah, you're going to get a version of it in two weeks, but then you're going to get the ultimate version on home, on home release like three weeks later. You know, because the Ultimate Edition was announced basically before and it was coming out just afterward. It was like it was this weird like compromise, I feel, where the studio told Snyder like, yeah, we're going to cut a half hour off your movie so that we think it'll hopefully make it more profitable. But don't worry, you know, we'll get we'll put your version on Blu-ray and people will like that. To me, what that ended up doing was. It made people who felt like, well, I'd rather see the unadulterated version of this movie. And apparently I only have to wait a few more weeks and then I can get it on Blu-ray. So that was all just a tangent. But that's all to say, when that news came out, that Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice would have a rated R cut, uh, I was not happy with that. You know, to me, the idea of a Superman movie, of a Batman movie, of a Wonder Woman movie, you know, a movie like that that I can't bring my kids to, like, to me, it just felt so off. It felt like you can't do this. You know, that is taking things too far. That's taking something that's supposed to inspire kids to go get their, their Wonder Woman underoos, and now you're basically saying, no, you're not allowed to. This is only for your parents to enjoy. It just didn't feel right. But, you know, now we're in a different position. Now we're in a place where there could be a different Batman for everyone. And I'm kind of I'm kind of here for it, Bat of Gotham. This next one also comes from Twitter. This comes from GT Kelly, who I've spoken to. He's writing an amazing book, by the way, but we'll talk about that some other time. But GT Kelly, the wonderful author that he is, sent in a question. He asked, I'm seeing rumors of Vincent D'Onofrio reprising his kingpin role in Spider-Man 3 due to the multiverse. Any thoughts on that? Well then, Mr. Kelly, what I think is this. I think we all have to take any rumor regarding Spider-Man 3 with a huge grain of salt because there's a lot of crazy ones out there. And for good reason, mind you. There's crazy rumors because of the fact that we're going into the multiverse thing and they brought in Jamie Foxx and there's all this thought of 
Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield showing up. And we already know that we have the J.K. Simmons, J. Jonah Jameson popping up in there. So there's lots of insanity happening within this Spider-Man 3 movie already. And when people start hearing multiverse and people start hearing that it's entirely possible that Spider-Man faces villains from across his entire cinematic legacy in this film's third act, that Doctor Strange is going to appear, you know, basically any rumor now sounds like it could be legit because this movie sounds like it's going to be completely insane. So when it comes to these rumors, yeah, you just got to take a deep breath. A lot of them sound great. A lot of them sound, strangely enough, possible and plausible in this brave new world that we're entering. But until they get confirmed, you got to just hang back. But also, and most importantly, when it comes to Kingpin specifically, there's another sticking point in all this. Because remember, it's not just a matter of Disney deciding they want to bring in some of those Netflix Marvel characters, right? Because like there was a lot of buzz earlier this week because Daredevil, the rights officially became available again for Disney or you know, for Marvel Studios to properly reintroduce Daredevil. And there was a lot of people saying, well, then they should get back Charlie Cox. And, you know, they, they, they want, there was a big hashtag save Daredevil movement online. So when it comes to that stuff, though, this isn't just a matter of Marvel Studios or Disney, the parent company, deciding, okay, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and bring in some of these Marvel Netflix characters. Because Spider-Man 3 isn't just a Marvel Studios movie, isn't it? It's a Sony Pictures production as well. And we also know that Sony has been dying to take Spider-Man into their own little playpen and basically take him back from Marvel Studios. Yeah, that's what happened last August before Tom Holland was somehow able to stitch together a deal to keep him attached to the Marvel Cinematic Universe for at least one more movie. But in this particular case, it would take Disney getting an okay from Sony to bring in a character from a Marvel Entertainment TV show, which doesn't even exist anymore. You know, the, that Marvel TV studio doesn't even exist. All that, That's one of the reasons why, you know, all those Marvel Netflix shows went away. You know, it's a whole other ball game now. So here's Disney Plus saying, can we, can we take a character from a Netflix show that we forced to cancel and put them in a movie that involves a character you own the rights to? You know, so it really comes down to, will Sony go for it? And is there enough of a reason, enough of a motivation to include him in this film to kind of cut through whatever kinds of weird red tape or, or, or potential bloating of the plot bringing him in could do. Because listen, Kingpin is a great Spidey villain, and I'm with you, GT. I would love to see Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin face off against Tom Holland's Spider-Man. I mean, that would be one for the ages. Those are two tremendous actors, and I think it would be absolutely amazing. And in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse... Kingpin was more or less the main villain. So there already is kind of like in the pop culture lexicon, this idea of Kingpin as Spider-Man's villain in the present day, you know, in contemporary Spider-Man storytelling, Kingpin has been a villain very recently, even in that wonderful 
uh, Spider-Man game on PlayStation. Kingpin factors rather large in the first, you know, third of that game. So I totally understand the want for it. I think it would be amazing. But people have to remember the Sony Pictures element because Sony has their own plans already. You know, Sony's already made, you know, they, they've got Venom 2, they've got Morbius, they've got plans for where they want to go with Spider-Man after this. This is, you know, it, it, they, they've already got a vision for this. So trying to just squeeze in other people might be a little more of a, a difficult task. But listen, if they're able to do it, oh my goodness, you know, who, who wouldn't kill to see D'Onofrio's Kingpin in a Spider-Man movie, you know? That would just be... And, and then if they can get Cox's Daredevil to team up with Spidey in that, even better. You know, but I feel like it would be a lot easier to say that that's all very likely if all of these characters were all under the same exact umbrella. If Disney owned them all and Spider-Man was just like any other hero in the, you know, Marvel gallery, then I would say, yeah, that sounds like it could really happen. But the Sony Pictures thing is the wild card. So I hope that answers your question, GT. And lastly, before I wrap things up with a long-form discussion on Superman and his origins and using Frank Miller's Superman Year One to have a pretty in-depth conversation with a, with a fellow passionate nerd about Superman and his, his mythology and his arc in that book, and the elements that are essential and non-essential and the things that I'd never really seen done before that were handled a certain way in Superman Year One. Before we get into that, I got to talk to you for a couple minutes about The Mandalorian because I finally got to start Season 2 last week. I cracked the whip, guys. You know, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, the big holdup was not a lack of interest on my part. I've been jumping up and down waiting to watch The Mandalorian Season 2 basically since the moment that Season 1 wrapped. But I was, I was being a nice husband. I was being a good boy. And my wife really wanted us to finish The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix before we started Mandalorian. But for whatever reason, probably because she could tell I'm just not into it, we really stalled out on Bly Manor. And we have still the finale has been sitting there waiting for us to watch it for about three weeks now. So finally, last week, after we put the kids to bed, I told my wife, I'm like, I can't keep waiting. I keep hearing that the show is unbelievable this season. I'm missing out. Every time people tweet about it, I have to scroll past it so quickly because there's always some kind of spoiler. There's so many things that are apparently happening this season that are buzzworthy and that everyone seems to want to dissect and hypothesize and come up with theories for. I need to see this. So I cracked the whip and last week we finally started season two. So that's the good news. The bad news is it was just the one episode. So I'm still woefully behind. So far there have been five. There have been five and I've only seen one of them. So I can't go into too much detail about what's gone on these last few weeks, but just from watching the first episode and just from hearing some of the things, you know, I haven't gotten like very direct spoilers, but I more or less, you know, certain things have been, unfortunately, have seeped through. No matter how much I've tried to avoid them, certain things and certain elements happening this season have made their way to me. And so even just based on that, 
I've got something to say. Because to me, The Mandalorian is the promise fulfilled of this uh, of, of the the sale of Lucasfilm to, to Disney. This is the promise fulfilled. Because back in 2014 when they first announced it or 2013 whenever it was, when they announced the sale, all the headlines were about the sequel trilogy that Hamill and Ford and Fisher were returning, that there was going to be an episode seven, eight, and nine. And that was kind of like the big headline, aside from the fact that, you know, George Lucas has sold Lucasfilm to Disney. That was the big thing that a lot of fans were locked in on. But the part of the announcement that really piqued my curiosity was at the time, this idea of the anthology films, this idea of stories and movies set within the Star Wars galaxy that are not related to the Skywalkers, that are a completely sort of original story. And that, to me, was had me the most excited. It wasn't necessarily going back to see my old favorites again. It was the idea of, wait a minute, so... There's, there have been entire generations of storytellers and creators who were directly inspired by Star Wars and by George Lucas and the sandbox that he created. This means that we can see all those people, or I mean, not all of them. You couldn't, if you got everyone who's ever been inspired by Star Wars to make a Star Wars movie, I mean, I think we would, it would break the whole thing. But now we get to see the creme de la creme. We get to see top level creators flexing their imaginary, their imagination muscles in the Star Wars galaxy, checking out uncharted territories, exploring and expanding that world adding new twists and layers to the genre that George Lucas gave us. I was more excited about the original adventures that were to come than the continuation of the old ones, which is why I was ultimately somewhat let down by the fact that the first two anthology movies piggybacked so heavily on other, you know, on the original trilogy. You know, the, you have Rogue One, which leads us into Episode 4, and you have Solo, A Star Wars Story, which is really just, you know, it's a, it's a mild prequel to Han Solo, a character we already know, and explaining things that we didn't necessarily need explained again. Rather than letting storytellers explore all new territory, they were playing it very safe. And then The Mandalorian came around. To me, this series exemplifies what I was hoping someone would do. You know, I was hoping if you give someone the creative freedom to create something special and unique that both honors and enhances the Star Wars mythology and pushes off into new directions, that is what's going to be the big bonus in all this. Not just, all right, let's go see the old folks again. You know what I mean? Like that was always going to be great. But to me, it was always about what happens after episode nine. Where do we go from there? And the fact that Lucasfilm, even at that juncture, you know, at, at, when they announced the sale, they were already talking about telling stories unrelated to the, uh, to, to the Skywalker saga. That's where I'm like, when they get to that, that's going to be the true test of whether or not this sale is a win or a loss for us. 
Now, while we can all argue the merits of the sequel trilogy and whether or not they really lived up and whether or not Ryan Johnson did this or J.J. Abrams did that, while we can do that, that's all in the rearview mirror now. Now, The Mandalorian is our gateway to Star Wars. And in a few years' time, after Kenobi has come to Disney+, and all that, then when there are eventually movies again, you got to imagine it's going to be something Mandalorian-esque, not necessarily based on that mythology, but the point is something that's new. Something where here's a protagonist you've never seen before, doing things that you've never seen done before, set in this world that feels like home to you. You know, and it's being done by people who also love this world as much as you do. Because that is what makes The Mandalorian so great, right? You could feel the love of Star Wars that permeates off the screen with this show. You can feel Jon Favreau's, you know, uh, affection for George Lucas. You can feel Dave Filoni's respect and, and, and dedication to doing this universe justice, you can see in, in the set designs and the costumes and the set, every single thing about The Mandalorian shows you that this is a Star Wars fan passion project. And I'm just obsessed. So that's why to me, like, I'm glad Episode Nine is behind us because Mandalorian is the future of Star Wars. And this is what I've been waiting for since the sale. And just one neat little thing while just watching Episode One. And I meant to say this, I mean, I, I, I wasn't doing the show when Mandalorian season one came out. You know, I was kind of on my hiatus. But when I watch that show, one of the reasons I, I geek out, one of the things I like about it is this feels like Batman in space. Because sometimes when you look at Mando, when you look at Mando, he's all mysterious and brooding. He's got the cape. He's got the grappling hook. He's got all these gadgets on his belt. You know, it, it, this feels like space Batman in a way. At times, you know, the, the way the action is framed and done, it's kind of incredible. So I just kind of wanted to mention that because I totally get Batman vibes. And I'm just wondering, does anyone else get Batman vibes? Because I have for a very long time. But um, all right. So I've been given a lot of thought ever since, you know, in a way, rediscovering Man of Steel a few weeks ago. I've been thinking a lot about Superman's mythology and the things about it that mean the most to me. And the things that I think are essential and the things that I think set up the character in, in, in the way that speaks the most to me. And one of the most recent attempts to sort of reboot or, or you know, inject new life into the Superman mythology was Superman Year One by Frank Miller. So while talking about that with my cousin, it dawned on me. I should have him on because my cousin Brandon is also a podcaster. I've mentioned him a couple times because him and Isaac have the Amateur Otaku podcast and he's a great guy. A lot of the early, you know, fanboy podcasts were really just me talking to Brandon after a movie when I was 15. You know, like we, my, our family has always dissected movies and all of these kinds of uh, geeky entertainments in ways that are very sort of in-depth and passionate. And, uh, you know, he was always right there with me where like, we could talk about this stuff for hours after the movie since we were kids. So when I was thinking about discussing Superman year one 
and knowing that Brandon had a lot to say about it. In fact, well, I won't give it away. I'll, t- I'll talk to you about why he is linked to that book when it comes to me. Um, I decided I should have Brandon on for this discussion. And I thought it might go for, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes, you know, something light, something fun. And we got so inspired. We had an hour long conversation about Superman. So I hope you like it. Here's my chat talking up Superman's origin by way of Superman year one with Brandon Alvarado of the Amateur Otaku Podcast. All right. As I live and breathe, I'm staring at my cousin, Brandon. Brandon, you're an awesome dude. And last year, was it a year ago? I'm not exactly sure when it was, but it was before all this COVID crap. Uh, You knew something was kind of going on with me and I was feeling a little down. And all of a sudden you were like, check your mailbox in a couple days. And then there was this wonderful book at my door. Superman year one. And I first of all just have to thank you because I I unfortunately don't make it much of a habit to go to the comic store and buy myself books or even on Amazon. I just don't buy myself books. I don't read good, Brandon. So I don't read very often. And you presenting that to me was pretty awesome. And it came to me at a good time. And I guess I just want to ask you, like, what was it about Superman year one that made you be like, I got to send this to Mario. Well, I mean, it's, it's a couple of things. And I think the most important thing is, of course, I have known you, sadly, all my life. And- <laughs> wow. Ouch. <laughs> no, that, that's all love. Um, <laughs> from this, no. Um, so, so I've always known how important the world of superheroes is to you. And, and um, that fantasy, what they, res- what they resemble. And... And, and the ideas of it, but I know how big Superman is for you mm-hmm. in, an, in an intimate way. Like he's just more than a superhero. He's like that friend that you always had and you have a very particular connection to him. Yeah. And this particular book explores him in a way that I think nobody has quite done it before. Mm-hmm. And it explores so many different facets of him that make him feel more real, more relatable, and also a lot more grandiose, which is, Mm. I think is the biggest undertaking of this book Mm -hmm. because anybody that knows about Superman know that he's Superman. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. He is the biggest guy in any room, just just by being who he is. Mm -hmm. But how this book takes his mythology and that god aspect of him and blows it out of proportion (laughs) Uh, one of the things that i love about the book more than anything which i think you would have enjoyed because you if anybody knows any all any if not all the most popular origins and even the more obscure origins of superman is you like those are probably the only books you read (laughs) (laughs) i mean truth be told it's pretty much just superman batman and spider-man in my collection that's all i ever have any time for so yeah yeah. So like um, your three pillars, right? Yeah. Um, so with Superman year one, one of the biggest things that, that drew me to it as, as you first read it is that we always anybody that reads Superman knows that it's this idea of a God among men 
this these immovable object in, in the midst of this world of fragility and humanity. But nobody has narrated his story mm. in this Greek Roman mm. mystical sense the way Frank Miller does. I mean, in it's, this it's Frank Miller. You know. it, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. And it's like it's it's all about that that narrative style that I think makes everything that we see in this book fresh. Mm-hmm. Apart from the decisions of where he takes the character. Yeah. Like he takes them and puts them in particular situations that you would not expect him to mm-hmm. to be there. But the reason he explores that to explore all the different types of ethical and moral decisions that he has to make. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a I think it's a new a new way of exploring Superman for a new generation. And and I, and, and, the, and the best thing about it is that this book, even though it's a great way of introducing new people to Superman, this book was written for people that have already read the story. Before. Yeah. This book was written for people that okay, I know you know who Superman is. I know you know where he comes from, but this is the way I see him. Mm-hmm. Like this is a very personal book for Miller. And what I love about the fact that it's so personal to him is that you actually, I can feel that this is the book that if you were to sit with Frank Miller and have a cup of coffee, this is how he would talk to you about Superman. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's very personal. It's very Mm -hmm. introspective. Um, I would even say that Frank Miller's voice sometimes is even louder than whatever the story of the book is there. And uh, I don't know, man, the book was great. The book was great. Well, I agree. I agree. So first what did of all, you like about it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love the hell out of it. Before we get into that, I just want to, again, thank you for sending it to me. Because, yeah, <laughs> I would not have necessarily sought this out. And, yeah, there's a lot of things about this that fill in some interesting blanks for the origin, too. Like, I felt like it went into some details that we've never or that I've never really seen handled quite this way. Even little things like like super puberty. You know, like when, you know, when things are getting hot and heavy with Lana, some of the verbiage in there and some of the, uh, you know, the passion that bounces off the screen, it's like, you know, what would it be like? You know, your, your body's going through all these changes and you're becoming a man. All the, Puberty is already weird. Now imagine puberty with superpowers and this girl you're crazy about and now you have her to yourself. And, you know, it's just, it, 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 it tackled a few different, I mean, all throughout there's things that I've never really seen Superman tackle. But I really liked seeing those early years and, and checking out that, you know, that that chapter mm-hmm. of his life, you know. Um, so, isn't it, what? I'm sorry, I, since you're right there. Yeah. How interesting is it that the entire first issue it's all about his childhood. Yeah. I love like, that. you know how most of the times when we, it's we like need the some... first three pages, <laughs> exactly. First three pages. And then he's off in Africa or first three pages. Yeah. And he's either seeing people on this tanker and, and apparently a <laughs> whale saves him. Um, Ooh. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> there's a lot of whales there. Um, but we're talking about this. Of course, this is DC black label, right? So yeah. these are, these are, Premier stories, right? Premier issues. There are three issues per story. Each issue is 66 pages. So out of these 66 pages, 60 of them were about his childhood. 
His time <laughs> as a toddler, yeah. his time as a kid in kindergarten, getting lost or or like the worries of his parents. And and then you have the whole time that he spends in high school. Yeah. You know, it's I, I love that. Yeah, it really it really explored it in a very in-depth way. And it was interesting, too, because you could tell that Miller really wanted to explore the Smallville origins. We spend hardly any time on Krypton because that's something you see a lot of, too, where like a lot of times if they are going to build, you know, spend a lot of time in the beginning of the story. There's a good chunk of Krypton in there and and the whole thing with Jor-El and the council or Zod or whoever. And here it was it was really just basically we open on the final moments of Krypton. Because really, what the where Miller sees the story starting is when he lands here, yep. and you know something I spoke about a couple episodes ago when discussing Man of Steel was this idea that I've always loved when Jonathan and Martha really are the ones who instill Clark's values, who really kind of you know guide him and give him his conscience and his moral center. You know, there have been stories in the past where he's treated almost like just he's just innately good all the time. And he's just, you know, he was just born this way. It's just in his genes to be this amazing, apparently. But for me, it's always struck me as far more interesting to make it that his adoptive parents, like had he not landed in that field in Smallville to Jonathan and Martha, who knows how he might have ended. He might have ended up Homelander. You know, he might have ended up Brightburn, you know, and it's funny because people yeah. say that all those like those dark takes on Superman are sort of lazy. But when you really think about it, like imagine if you had a, if you had a child that had those kinds of abilities, it would be very hard to parent them and steer them in the right direction. You know, you, yeah. it takes a very special set of parents to take this basically little baby demigod and keep him pure and humble and rooting for the good guys and, you know, on the right side of everything, you know? Yep. And I felt like uh, Superman year one, like, it was just all very interesting to me. Like, you know, Jonathan Kent in Man of Steel, since that's my most recent Jonathan Kent that I was discussing. Remember, his thing was like, Clark, don't ever show your abilities until you're ready. Um, even if, you know, there's that thing where like, should I have just let them die? And he's like, maybe. Like, he was so, like dead set against Clark revealing himself to the world before he was ready to do so that he basically would like, you know, he wanted Clark to be in hiding and it was, he he gave his own life basically to the tornado in Man of Steel because of that. But now this Jonathan is a different animal because he talks about basically like, you know, yes, your mother's right that you should, you know, might doesn't make right and you got to do the right thing, but sometimes you got to do something. You know, and my favorite line on this kind of conversation is when he goes like, your mother means well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but her heart's in the right place. Exactly. But you're no one's doormat. Yeah. And and, and I like how he takes the time, how you have those dichotomies like in parenthood. I I, I like how this this version of Jonathan Mm. was very in tune with who he was talking to. Yeah. Without without losing that he was his son, like you know what I mean, like yeah. like okay, I know that I'm talking to someone that can probably melt my eyes, <laughs> and melt my brains, yeah. but at the same time I care for him. He's my child. Yeah. So I gotta, I can't be a man and not tell him to 
do what's right and defend themselves. And like there's like this little great yeah, like area. Because like with any parent, you know, I've got yeah. two kids, and I I've had to have conversations like that too. Like if somebody's being mean to you in class, you know, sometimes you know it's hard because if they say that they've gone to the teacher and the teacher is not helping, a party is like then knock them out. You know, like you know you don't do it, but like it's just interesting too when I, I imagine like what if my kid was Kal-El, you know, like those conversations would be a million times more, you know, heightened. And yeah. something else I liked about this Jonathan too, is that he's like young and he feels, you know, there've been lots of iterations of Jonathan where he's kind of like an old man or like the, the, you know, he just feels, it seems like he's kind of on the other side of things. He's like, he's older. This one felt like younger and vital yep. And still, like, amidst his story with Martha, and they're raising Clark as this youngish couple. And um, to me, like, it just added a little extra sort of vibrancy and and relevancy to their connection. It didn't feel like some old man imparting some wisdom. Right. It felt like, you know, I'm trying to relate to you man to man. And, yeah, uh, yeah. no, I, I just, you know, th th there's lots about the way that he was raised in this that I really enjoyed watching. Um, but yes, while we're talking kind of like the, the fundamental sort of building blocks of Superman's mythology, right? We talk about Krypton, we talk about Smallville. Like, was there anything about the Smallville section of this version of the mythology that really jumped out at you? Um, to finish the conversation about the Jonathan Kent relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like, like, there's a lot of scenes between them that you can see how that relationship flourishes. Like to me, like you have that moment where they're sitting in his room, you know, after dark, after dinner, where mom's already asleep or whatever, and they're having that conversation. Yeah, it's like they're man, bros. Man. I like that dynamic. Exactly. And then you have this towards the end of the issue where they're working on the farm. Mm -hmm. They're all sweating. Yeah. They're moving hay or whatever. They're playing catch. Like Ooh, all these little things. Do. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and the, and the crazy thing is, like, like that moment where they're playing catch, and and in his mind, or of course, as Frank Miller's narration is like, he makes sure not throw the ball too. Far. Those observations. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. observations were so magical mm -hmm. because it, it because it makes you go like is is that it goes beyond the idea of going into Clark's thoughts. It yeah. goes towards the observation of, okay, so the demigod threw it with his left pinky. You know yeah. what I mean? Like like that kind of thing. And then yeah. you see Jonathan Kent with his glove. Like, if he threw a little bit hard, he's going to break my hand. <laughs> but he's still playing catch with him. Like, it's like this human idea that he understood that he had a responsibility to the world to raise this kid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it makes Jonathan even more vibrant and real character. Mm -hmm. um, Amen. The whole thing with um, the whole struggle with Clark and the bullies. Yeah. Him finding ways of making this, fixing this. And him actually trying all the right things first. I found that so interesting. Yeah, and learning like, hard lessons. Yeah, you know, and just to sort of like fill it in in case you know anyone watching or listening hasn't read the book, 
You know, there's this recurring thing with these high school bullies who come after Clark and all of his. In this timeline, Clark kind of hangs out with the outcasts. He's with the weirdos. Right. He's with, you know, right. the book nerds and the people who are just a little bit out of the mainstream. And as usual, the jocks and all those kind don't really like them. And they bully them pretty bad. And Clark has to figure out, like, do I stand back? Do I intervene? And there's lots of little lessons throughout the, you know, throughout that early, you know, early phase of the story, because at some point he does act out and he kind of shows just a sh small measure of what he could do to them. And he hurt a couple of them pretty bad or something. And then like the next day they retaliated against his friends and he realized, oh man, did I really make things better? You know, I may have blown off a little steam and felt like a big tough guy helping my friends yesterday. But I didn't actually help because now my friends are getting even more, you know, beat up. And, you know, it, it, it kind of shows his, his evolution as becoming the hero he's going to be is part of it is understanding where do I intervene? Where do I stand back? And when I do intervene, how do I do it? You know, because that was one thing that he was talking about. Like he, when he was learning from that, he's like, I, you know, I didn't make things better. And it seemed like your Clark gradually was learning now that when I go out there and I'm going to get involved in these things, I have to make sure to make things better. You know, yeah. it can't just be, you know, I'm going to beat these guys up and it's going to feel real right. good and I'm going to get the satisfaction of beating up the bad guy. Right. It's like, no, I actually have to, you know, like save people and, and make this, you know, make things better. And I, I you know, there's, I like that the the book really kind of like locks in on those little key decisions on his way to becoming Superman, you know, his evolution as a hero. Yeah. And another seed that's right there with that conflict, it's even if it's just a seed at that point, mm -hmm. is him learning about the effective, effectiveness in the idea of justice, yeah. of journalism. Mm. The yeah. idea of collecting evidence to prove a point, to bring forth justice, mm -hmm. to 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 bring conviction of yeah. what other people are doing that is wrong and and him understanding the role of that and how that influences of course what we know that Clark Kent becomes in yeah. the future yeah you know and it's it's all those little things that come from his time in the farmlands yeah that that we really haven't never explored because just the idea of him working on a daily planet right it's it's like for us for most people it's a given Nobody questions it. Yeah. Why? Well, he's a reporter. But why? Because Lois is there. But why? No, no, he's a talented writer. He's brilliant. He, but why? Yeah. There, there, there has he to be this. He doesn't need a job. Yeah, like, well, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. And, and it all goes back to, and I think this goes back to also to the narrative, the narrative function of Frank Miller uh, talking, talking about or narrating the story as this Greek epic and all that stuff mm -hmm. is the idea that Yes, Clark Kent is the identity that he assumed, but he is Superman. Yeah. Like, he is Superman. Yeah, he even and, said and, that. He said Clark is the disguise. You know, make Clark yep. the mask, basically. Exactly. And and one of the things that I always, that I didn't know till reading this book, and it goes back also to Superman Earth 1, which is another origin that I read yeah. recently, is that the idea of him being in Metropolis, the idea of him being fair, is that... That is the hub to the world. Yeah. That's how he gets in touch with everything that's going on. And and him understanding the importance of news, 
photos, stories, yeah. knowledge, all started in the farm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and how he ties everything back is just, you know. Yeah. Although and it, for me, one of the great things that Miller did, one of the interesting twists that the turn takes is that I've never even thought about the idea of Clark enlisting in the army. But if you think about it, you know, kid growing up in Kansas, ideas of being a hero and changing the world, you know, one route one could take is I'm going to, you know, fight in the Navy and defend America and and explore the seas. And, you know, you could see how he would be tempted to do that. And I remember when it was for when he first said it to Jonathan and they now they were going to go into the house and break it to Martha and, you know, which that was played so well. It was like like down to earth. Yeah. And again, he was Jonathan's on his side. He's like, "Oh, this is gonna kill her," but uh, <laughs> you know. But um, yep. what I liked about that though is, while in while doing the whole Navy thing, they go on that crazy mission where they have to go and you know, there's an oil tanker that's been overtaken by pirates and yada yada. And while on that, he discovered that like, I can't just kill people willy nilly. You know, I can't kill like these soldiers. They make it sound and look so easy. Just a quick head tap. And they're just going around stealthily killing all these people while he wanted to find a way to like, let's end the chaos, but let's not actually kill anybody. You yeah. know, it's this idea. And I wrote it down here because like it gets to, it gets to the idea that being a hero is about saving lives, not ending others. You know what I mean? It's where he kind of learned, like, not to be a blunt force instrument here to, like, just break stuff and make a statement and, you know, then hurt people. It's like, no, you know, it, it almost makes you think about Star Wars The Last Jedi um, with, um, what's her name? Rose Tico says, like, you know, we're not going to do anything. It's, it's not about hurting the people you hate. It's about saving the ones you love. And in general, you know, I, I tie it to this because, to me, true heroism comes from saving lives not hurting or ending others and to me that was all like the the, the that lesson was right in there and and that whole you know the, the whole navy chapter of the origin to me struck me as like what an awesome way to show how clark evolved into the hero he is the hard lessons he had to learn and the disciplines and the restraint and the respect he had to you know use while being in the navy putting up with all the different things he had to put up with and, uh, yeah, no, I just thought that was a great little twist that I did not see coming. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it, it bottles, it, it bought, it pinpoints Frank Miller's understanding of what it is that makes Superman work. And mm-hmm. of course, Superman is so hard to write for it. No. Um, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> But the thing about Superman is that you don't give him physical obstacles. No. You don't give him um, epic feats. Those are going to come. Those are part of the package. But the way you make him interesting and relatable is by putting in front of him these these ethical, moral hoops, um, questions that he has to ask himself that that no one has the power to ask him. Yeah. But the situations themselves. And what other way for him to understand his role as Superman in the world than to understand that he's not here to be just another soul that will kill lives, that will take orders from someone else, which plays down the line with everything that happens with Lex Mm -hmm. later. 
but he's not here just to take orders. He needs to be able to make decisions that nobody else can make because he is the only one that has the power to make them. Mm -hmm. And also going back to the idea of him enlisting. Yeah. There's an, there's another point of why he did it also too. So what was the the world? Yes. See his planet, know his planet. And he's broke. Yeah, well, that too, yeah. But that you, makes you know it very I mean? human. Yeah, yeah, I know what you but mean. But you know what I mean? Nobody nobody thinks about that. Yeah. And Frank Miller, I mean, he doesn't say it, but Frank Miller thought about it, especially this little line where he goes that, and don't worry, Mom, when I start getting paid, I'll be able to send you guys money. Like, yeah. you, know, you know, like the he whole got thing. <laughs> he, they got nothing. Yeah. You know, he grew up with nothing. So he can't just, and it's not about him just, flying around the world, which he can. He understands that for him to really know the world, he has to experience it Mm -hmm. as much as he can as one of us. And that's one of the things that is really highlighted, especially in the time that he's training in the Navy, is that he begins to understand how fragile we are. And especially those comments and those thoughts when he's, they're all working out and, and you can hear him going, this is so hard for them, mm-hmm. but they still do it. Yeah. And then you see these guys yeah, he's getting all and, this respect for humans through it. Exactly. Also, yeah. and, then, and then you get the whole thing with the guys crying for their mothers and, you know, and all those things. And he's seeing this live. Yeah. He wouldn't have gotten that if he would have just flown above. Yeah. He needed to, he needed to go deeper into the ground with these humans that, accompany him in this life yeah like it's funny how there's like comedy the dichotomy between i don't want to jump hoops but the dichotomy between him and batman is like batman saves people or his city by going into the dark corners that nobody wants to go to but superman becomes the hero that the world needs by getting deeper and deeper into humanity, whether it's raw or horrible or weak or fragile. And that's how we understand it. And by Even, finding another way. Exactly. And and here's the craziest thing. Did you notice that this is the one book where Superman is never weakened? Yeah, there's none of that. Like, There's none yeah. of that. Because, of course, he's portraying this godly being. So how are you going to bring him down? You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. no kryptonite, no idea of stuff. All they talk about it, and he's just getting stronger. And he's yeah. just getting stronger. Won't he stop getting stronger? And he knows that he's getting stronger. But as he's getting stronger and more powerful, he's understanding more. Yeah. Like, he's bringing, like he's himself is making it a point to bring himself down yeah. to the level of all of, of humanity. Um, and then he goes and business mermaids. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. Speaking of like things I did not see coming, <laughs> you know, I didn't see the Navy thing. And then when I see like the, the, the next book is just called Atlantis. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, is this like an Aquaman thing? Is he going to bump into Arthur down there? And then there's this whole subplot. I mean, not even a subplot. It becomes the main story where he's in love with this mermaid and he's going to you know, yep. prove to Poseidon that he's worthy of her. And he fights these different sea monsters. He fights a kraken. Like, and he technically becomes just, the king of he Atlantis? He becomes the king of Atlantis. <laughs> like, where, <laughs> Frank, I don't know what Frank was on when he got to that part, but I want some. <laughs> no, but, but you know what's interesting about all that, though, is that I think it's part of... 
I think they're trying to he's trying to prove a point. Yeah. Like like the first book, the first book or the first parts of the book up to the Navy point, right? It's all about him mixing with humanity, mm-hmm. right? And blending in and understanding. Now, he needed to present him in the midst of other godly elements. Yeah. So now he's within the pantheon. So now he's within these mystical creatures and even there he is greater. Yeah. Which is a very interesting idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that that this is like he's supposed to be like of course when you read the end of the book, like at the end, what is he doing? He's going to space. Like yeah. he's going the next farther frontier. beyond. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like <laughs> so it's all about him moving further and further away from humanity, yeah. but being the most human element in the book or in the story. Yeah. So it's so super interesting. Um it is super weird because you know he he um, follies with the mermaids, but um, by the way, so much for that like I'll never forget Lana thing. He just like eh, mermaid time. Which which if you think about it, <laughs> it's very typical of that old fashioned kind of yeah Greek like story, which it kind of gives you that 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 suspension of disbelief and leads me to this other point. Did you notice that this book is? It's going to sound super weird, but I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say. This book is excessively Superman-centric. Like, every single character is, oh, yeah. like, going around his axis. So it's not even about the Yeah, it really is circus. his story. You're right. I, I know what you mean. Because there are stories where, where it's almost like he's, you know, we're following Lois's thing and Superman is there right. or whatever. You know, like, or there's yeah. a little bit, Or there's a little bit of main stories here and there with other characters. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's all about him. It's all about him. him and his psyche as he goes through all this. Which is why there's no point of going back to Lana. There's no point of going back to Laurie. And yeah. the other thing is, even those characters that are your main supporting roles, Perry White, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane... You don't see Lois Lane till issue number three, which is yeah. the last issue, and she barely has any screen time. Yeah, and and there's nothing beyond the fact that she's a reporter. So like she he's she's only there because she's part of the mythos, because it accentuates his image. Not because, but not because it's a masculine or yeah. or this. You know what I mean? It's not a, this sexist thing. It's just because it's all about the tale. Of the Superman mm-hmm. is this? I don't know. This I'm yeah, in this no, Greek vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It Some, is super fascinating. Something else I really dug too is in Metropolis. Once he's out and he's established, and uh, it's kind of like a montage of him, you know, doing saves and bringing people to the police. There's a cool shot where he didn't not he he doesn't only bring the criminals to the cops and then just leaves them there. He hangs a sign of shame over their, of shame over their neck that says, "Hi, I'm so and so, and I did this." And it you know yep. says their name and their crime, and even the types of crimes that were listed because like some of them you know what was like selling heroin to children. One is a rapist. One is I steal people's life savings. I mean, he goes after all kinds of injustices, not just like violent yep. crimes. Like you're stealing people's life savings. Like that's Wall Street crooks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it shows like Superman, you know, this Clark is trying to right lots of different types of wrongs. You know what I mean? And I thought that was a cool little touch too. 
You know, that, just that whole, like, just adding that other little element. I'm not just going to have you arrested. I'm going to publicly shame you for what you did. On top of that, if you're Superman, too, and you don't want, and, and, and you're trying to basically, like, inspire and make a message that transcends to everyone watching. Yeah. It, that what a great way to do it. Just simply having the people arrested. All right, they're arrested by publicly shaming them with the signs. It's yeah. letting people who do those things know. Oh, we're on Superman's radar. Okay, yeah. I thought he was just you know looking for you know super powered aliens coming out of the sky yeah. or guys robbing a bank. Like he's coming for people who were just harming others. If you are you know if you are harming other humans in some way, shape, or form. You're on Superman's radar, so you're going to want to second guess that, you know? So I really love that element of this, too. I mean, there were just so many great little touches in this book, man. Um, yeah, it, and, and when you say that, it, it also shows you how smart he is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just this blunt figure. No, he, he understands how the world works mm-hmm. and how the different elements of the world affect people differently. So he... Like he knows that he has um, a very full plate of the things that he can bring and help the world with. Yeah. But one of the things that I love the most is that every time he's flying, he has a smile on his face. Yeah. He's flying with a smile on his cause, face. Because you know because this Clark to me in general feels more like a legitimate Smallville farm boy, who like you know is enjoying this and like the, the exhilaration of what he gets to do. It's a rush because it still feels somewhat like I can't believe I can do this. You know what I mean? It's not something that he takes for granted, especially in year one where he's still, you know, in in theory, you know, uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed and still, you know, who knows if they were to continue this story, you know, where he ends up in a few years. He does years of this harden him after a while. But Yeah. yeah, in year one here, I mean, it's all just. This is unbelievable. I can fly and I can do all this stuff and I can save people and I can, you know, like, you know, yeah. I, I can date mermaids and you know, <laughs> it's it's uh, my, it's all a big victory lap for him right now. One of my favorite scenes on in the book is when you have the whole hostage situation mm-hmm. in LexCorp. Yeah. And he saves the baby. Yeah. Right? And he grabs and he's flying sideways and he's just smiling. Yeah. Because he's trying to keep her happy. And then the baby throw ups on him. Yeah. But he understands. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. But he understands like those little things that he has so much sensitivities towards the fragility of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that particular dichotomy has ever been explored in this detail. Yeah. You know, like, like we always, we always have like a happy medium and we only explore um, Superman immortality. Whenever you're talking about Kryptonite, or whenever he's, you know, like Earth One does a great job of exploring that, because on issue two of Earth One, he fights Parasite, and Parasite drains everything from him. Yeah. So he becomes literally mortal, and and then he, you get you get this idea of him struggling with the idea of oh my God, I've always known that you guys are weak. But now that I feel it, now I feel the fear that comes yeah. with mortality and that whole thing. So 
because you never get a de-weakened Superman, the w- the way they double the way he Frank Miller doubles down on him seeing how weak they are, yeah. and and just spending so much time with them. I think that's what he does in this story that works so well. I don't think I've seen Clark Kent the Observer, yeah, the way you see him in this book. Mm-hmm. Like you always know that he travels. We always know that he. You know, eats away books, and he's super brilliant. But we don't, we don't really see Clark Kent, the one that observes people, the one that observes his surroundings. The one that who would observe- make for a good reporter because he has an eye for detail and he likes to exactly. hear and you know see see yep. what's going on. Like you never really see that, and mm-hmm. and you see, and I love how that's not just one thing that happens in one place. It's something that you see. It's him. a general character trait of yep, his. Yep, yep. He's constantly observing and discovering his world yeah you know and that's that's the thing i mean and honestly to me it's a tall order for me to buy into yet another origin you know there have been so many times that this story has been told and you know that my favorite you could say it come on what's my favorite modern origin of superman is it birthright yes it is you know to me birthright sort of set the the bar for what a modern Superman reboot should be. And then this one, I'm like, at first I was skeptical. I'm like, ah, do I really want to go down this road again. But Brandon sent me the book and it's Frank Miller. Let me see what's going on here. And I, I w- what blew me away was how much new ground Miller was able to cover and how he was able to expand on ideas that are not even necessarily new, but he just put his own spin on them. Because yep. something I loved about Birthright also is that he has that reporter thing. And part of what Clark does when he realizes he's, you know, on his path to one day becoming maybe a superhero is he goes to travel the world and he goes to Africa and he embeds himself with, you know, these these gorillas in the wild. And he's trying to, like, basically understand humans and why we do the things that we do. And he's, you know, and, and you know, I. I, I've always liked the, the idea that Clark becoming a reporter, as you said, like it's not just a give a foregone conclusion and something he does because eh, why not? It's something because he has always been just innately a curious person and fascinated by humanity and the planet. It's this world that he's on. And that would naturally make you want to be a journalist. It it would make you want to learn things on a deeper level and see the whole world. And then it would give you great empathy as you do that. And Superman is is always empathetic as one of his great qualities. And, of course, he would get that while traveling the world and, and observing humans and seeing, you know, kind of how, you know, feeling their fear, acknowledging their weakness, admiring their courage. You know, all those things would all add up to why he would be such an unbelievable symbol of hope to us and how he would know how to inspire us because we're not just these random things around him. We're these other people that share the planet with that he's been keeping an active eye on all this time trying to understand what makes us tick and trying to help us the best way that he can. You know, so Miller touched on all that and I'm like, man, now I have another new modern reinvention of Superman that I'm like really high on and that I would love to see adapted into, you know, be it a movie or a series one day, you know, like this is a good story. This is like, you know, he he knocked it out. Now, 
on the on the basis of Frank Miller, I mean, we haven't talked about him today, right? What? Um, Frank Miller is involved. Yeah. So I have a question. Um, have you have you read The Dark Knight Returns? Yes. Okay. Do you think that this is the Superman that grows up to fight Bruce Wayne at the end of Dark Knight Returns? I didn't make that connection. No. You know, that's what I thought yeah. to me, which is why I, I, I like this book a lot also, <laughs> is that I feel that apart from the fact that The Dark Knight Returns is very much a Batman book, mm-hmm. apart from that, right? Um, I think that the Superman that we see in that book, which is, as we know, Dark Knight Returns is another Frank Miller magnum mm-hmm. opus. Um, very is, different Superman in that one. Yes. And it kind of feels that it has to do with the idea that Frank Miller has this ability to influence his narrative function via the perspective of the character that he's exploring. Mm. So so this is not yeah, necessarily like, Frank Miller's version of Superman. It's more of this is how Bruce sees see Superman. Yeah, yeah exactly. I like that idea. Yeah. In and, Dark Knight and I, Returns, the Superman we see who's kind of like the square jawed tool of the state kind of guy. Literally. Yeah. That's like, how, that's how that Bruce sees him, but maybe that's not necessarily him. And I know what you mean. Like it's basically through the eyes of our, uh, of our, you know, of our narrator, right. so to speak. Our I, main... I, I also find it very hilarious how the first real shot that you get of Clark is him with a boulder and a freaking Eagle. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But then again, this book, finally shows us what Frank Miller really sees. Yeah. And, that's and the thing I, is I wouldn't believe for a second that he would then become a tool of the state. This one, after he's been through the Navy and after yep. they discharged him from the Navy yep. for saving lives. Remember, ultimately he loses his Navy career because instead of killing all those guys, he you know makes the blows up the grenade himself and they don't have to kill him. They can just bring him in. You know, and then it re- he did something heroic. He did something valiant, yeah. and yeah. they kick him out of the Navy for it. Yeah. You know what and I mean? So you, I have a hard then, time believing that this guy becomes that guy, you know? And especially after the whole thing with Lex Luthor, when Lex Luthor is, of course, doing his typical maniacal speech or whatever, and you see him going, that's not what we talked about. That's not, you know what I mean? Like disagreeing yeah. with everything he was doing. And... I like that we finally know how he feels about the character because to go this deep, to explore him in this fashion, it shows that Frank Miller has this profound respect for what this character can do and the effect that he brings to all culture. Because the cool thing about it is that even though it has this Greek or mythical perspective, yeah. Most of these heroic tales of Greek mythology are there for what? To inspire us. Yeah. Are yeah. there to they're move moral us. tales and they're there to yep. you know inspire and educate yep. and yeah. Yep. And this and this one falls right on there. I mean when the kids are old enough I'm going to have them read this one for for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, when I think about Superman's origins, you know, like what every good Superman story needs to include, you know, I feel like everything is represented in this book yeah, and everything's represented really well. 
You know, like, I mean, I know what my staples are. I'm just curious for you, like, what are five elements that a Superman origin has to touch on? Like, when I say elements, you know, like the destruction of Krypton, for example. Right, right, right. Like, like, yeah. yeah. You got to have the destruction of Krypton. You got to have the fine, the, the, the idea of him being found yeah. by Jonathan or Martha. Um, you got to have um, at least a glimpse of him running through the cornfield. <laughs> yeah, that is you know what I mean? pretty iconic shot at this you, point. You got you to gotta have that. You got to have the, the first scenic save in the city. Yeah. And you got to have the interview. To me, the interview, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. to me, the interview is the most important one. And I think because... Because Lois is the one who introduces the world to Superman, basically. That's one. That's one. But also because I wasn't... I never thought about it this way until you asked me, but because it ties it up to one of the best Superman representations. Ah. Ties it up to Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's Reeve. like there's no S at the end. Reeve. Sorry. I'm a stickler. Okay, Reeves. I don't know. <laughs> well, the S is no, I'm <laughs> the S is silent, but it does stand for hope. <laughs> but yeah, like it goes back to that, and I think it's it's after that movie, I don't know how many previous comic book versions of Superman introduced him via that interview or via that expose. Um because it's the idea of him because so metropolis is this central hub right yeah so it's like new york city it's mm -hmm. like the city of the world right yes so the reason that interview was so important because as soon as that interview was published in the daily planet the whole world read yeah so it's not just about him being in the front page, you know, yeah. it's all about Hello, how he gets Earth. known. Exactly. Yeah. And I like, I like the relationship with, with Lois Lane and all that stuff. Um, in Superman Earth one, interestingly enough though, Clark <laughs> does the interview. Ah, yes. I haven't read and, that one in a few years. So super, so Superman Earth one, which you, so you've read it before. Yeah. I read it like when it came out, however many years. So you ago. read the first volume or have you read the, first the whole volume. thing? So interestingly enough, it's it funny that Superman Earth One, Volume One, literally, like you can see where Man of Steel took so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much from. It's crazy, <laughs> and it's funny because, and, and just a bit of a tangent, but so Superman Earth One, a lot of the stuff of Man of Steel come from that, but then the final volume, which is Volume Three of Superman Earth One, yeah, takes from Man of Steel. Oh, and a, yeah, like. Because literally, it's all about connecting the whole Tyrell invasion to Zod, mm -hmm. and then it takes and it goes yeah. that direction. <clears throat> um, but yeah, man. So, destruction of Krypton, finding the parents, cornfields, epic save, interview. <laughs> all right, all right. See, I, I, I'm glad I ask. Uh, let's see. You got to have the destruction of Krypton. To me, you got to have, you know, the big moment when he finds out his origin on Smallville. To me, that's a biggie. The moment, like, you know, okay. when does he find out? 
You know, it's been handled before where he kind of always knows. It's been handled before where he finds out when he turns like 17, 18 years old. You know, there have been different times and ways in which it happens. But I feel like the that moment he finds out his true origin is very important. Um, I feel like the... See, for me, everything about the, the Daily Planet is very important. And to me, it, it's kind of multifaceted, but like... You know, you you got to present me the, the the reader or the viewer with like a Perry White, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane trio that like to me like I I can see it and it feels like the Daily Planet to me. I mean, it's hard to explain, but like to me that you know that that trio that of characters hustle and bustle, that that yeah. real world that yeah. machine. Yeah, you know, and the way that the juxtaposition of that and Smallville, you know, he comes from this quiet, scenic farmland and now he's here in the big city in like arguably the most important newsroom in this world and i gotta have a perry white who breaks through all the noise who everyone listens to and you know you, you gotta have the jimmy olsen who's gonna be you know the the photographer who kind of you know sometimes isn't that great at what he does but his heart's in the <laughs> right place and you know him and Clay, he he's a good pal to clark yep. and then that dynamic with lois you know so i feel like you know, destruction of Krypton, the moment he finds out what he really is, his introduction at the planet, the big save, I agree, you got to have the big save. And I guess just one, you know, defining moment in the story where he demonstrates the type of hero he's going to be. I feel like the origin needs to sort of establish who this hero is, you know, oh, so... That, that that to me, uh, th th those are the things you got to hit up in your Superman origin story. You know, if all you do as part of that is him beating up a bunch of bad guys at the end, and that's the, and that's your best example of the type of the type of hero he is, you you drop the ball. You know, there needs you to be you missed the point. Yeah, you yeah. missed the point. You know, you, you, there needs to be something in the movie that shows like, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> stop it! I like it now. Remember. <laughs> Um, stop it. Uh, but, uh, damn it, Brandon. Um, but yeah, you know, you, so you got to have that moment where he does something Superman awesome that shows like he's a cut above the rest. There's something special about this hero, about this character. You know, he's inspiring, you know, all of humanity or he's doing something that no one thought was possible. It, it, it's more than just. Look at all the bad guys I beat up, you know? Yep. yep. So, uh, yeah. And you know what's funny? You what? say that, and it makes me go back to the idea that he captures the bad guys and puts signs on them. Yeah. Because it's not just about the capture. Yeah. It's the fact that the capture saved people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And a... put all those people on notice, you know? Yep. yep. So, no, that's... The, the, so I gotta shake. I gotta shake. I gotta shake the trees a little bit on your staples. Oh God! So you said this. You said destruction. Now you said you said him discovering who what he is. Yes. Um. Can we both agree that one of the best moments of Man of Steel mm -hmm. is that moment that young Clark has with Jonathan. Which is straight out of another great Superman comic book origin, which you, if you haven't read yet, I've got it. I'll mail it to you. No, but it's a uh, Superman secret origin. It's Jeff Johns. 
Okay. It's Jeff Johns. It's Gary Frank who draws Superman. I mean, if you like the Reeve Superman, he draws mm-hmm. Superman like Christopher. Oh, nice. And um, that scene is straight. Like, that's pretty much what they lifted that Jonathan Kent scene from. Um, so him with the with the spaceship like underneath the farm, and, and, and where he's saying like, "What if I want to? What if I just want to be your son?" And Jonathan says, "You are my son." Like that's basically like that scene is in that book. So you need to read Superman Secret Origin. Okay. But yes, that to. scene. I have to. It's I amazing. To I know. I that know. is awesome. That scene, and then of course, I love how Smallville had to stretch it. You know, he had to they had to make a season of it, but still, it, it's a good scene there. Um, so you have that. So I, so I, so I agree with you that. Can I, can I say that maybe one of the guilty pleasure influences <laughs> that we both have in terms of the Daily Planet machine, did it come from Lois and Clark? <laughs> Is no. there an influence there? <clears throat> like, <throat> I mean, because to me, even though how corny that show is yeah. and all that stuff. The magic of that show is in the Daily no, Planet. No, I really, I mean, you I know. love the Daily Planet. And Terry Hatcher was a dynamite Lois and the whole, yep. you know, I mean, it was great. But for me, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Uh, but the, the Reeve movies, the the, the Richard okay. Donner Daily Planet, that was the first Daily Planet I really got to know. And in that story, the way it's presented, you know, that's where you first have that, you know, the, the hustle and bustle and rat-tat-tat of the big city. You know, like, it's such a sharp contrast from everything that came before. You know, you have the first act, which is like Shakespeare in space, and we have British accents, and everything is grandiose and insane, and we have glowing robes. <laughs> then, you know, you have the Smallville stuff where it looks like a painting, and it's, you know, very nostalgic and picturesque and Americana and very sort of like old-fashioned, you know, here's Kansas and America, y'all. And we're listening to, you know, Rock Around the Clock and all that kind of right. stuff. And then when we come to Smallville, it's honking horns and people yelling at each other and there's a million pedestrians everywhere. And then he gets into this newsroom and he's like, in, he's you know, here's the guy who's six foot four and he disappears in that place. So like you can't even see him because there's so much going on. And yeah. Perry White is such a big, boisterous character um, that to me, yeah. like that was the first Daily Planet where I'm like, whoa, yeah, this is uh, this is this is a big change. And this is an important part of. You know, the of the story, a good Superman story needs to have something like this just to kind of show the, you know, the progression of his story. You know, to me, one of the one of the best additions um, and this and it's funny how you bring the, the idea of the staples. And I go back to thinking of all the different origin stories of Superman specifically that I've read and how pretty much every author has their vision of the staples. Like this is one of those origin stories that it's so structured, yeah. In a way, if not excessively structured, which 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 beckons each author to be a, even more creative in how they explore it, which is why this book works so well. Yeah. Um, now, to me, also in in the idea of the destruction of Krypton, part of me is tempted to ask you if you prefer the Brando or the whole Jor-El Russell Crowe adventure. But at the same time, it's that's not a question to ask because both of them are so powerful in their own way. Yeah, 
They're, they're, they're completely different animals and they work. Yep. Yep. And it's funny because easily anybody can go, oh, that's Zack Snyder with all that nice, pretty stuff. I've never seen Krypton like that. I, it was amazing. Yeah. I could have spent the whole movie on that Krypton. I yep. love that Krypton. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I wonder, did you ever see the Krypton show? I saw like the first episode and it looked really good. I was very intrigued by it. Was it? Was but it? I was just it? didn't follow through. Was the aesthetic Kryptonian like like? Yeah, I mean, it, so Goyer developed it, and I oh, think originally okay. it was going to be like an in-canon prequel, and then for whatever reason, I guess they decided not to directly link it. But there is a lot of connective tissue there, and it it does look and feel like it could be of that Krypton. You know, okay. they didn't have the budget to make it look quite as amazing right. as Snyder did, but it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like uh, it's his grandfather, uh, Superman's grandfather, it's Jor-El's father, who we follow in that one. It's Kal-El's grandpappy. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm glad you didn't ask me to pick one over the other because it, it's really, you know, it's true. I was, the, I was, I was kind of tempted to do so, but then I was like, no, but you can't because they're both. And and it's like every, it's all about that. That's the beauty of good writers and, and, and writing as an art form because the whole thing about like, isn't it funny us that we're artists, you know, we write, we do our own stuff, you know? <laughs> um, but isn't it funny how one of the first things that you learn in the life of an artist is that every story has been told, my friend, Yeah, you're not gonna, you're not going to say something new, Yep. but you just need to find a way it's, it's your hear. voice that makes it exactly and all the best superman stories have that yeah which is why Zack schneider's version of superman is legitimately that's his superman yeah, yeah. and even and, and like and, and, I, and i love how we can have a world where we can have these different versions and everybody can attach themselves to this fantastic character yeah because great characters don't alienate people. They're all inclusive in different ways, shapes, and forms. And you know, I love I love that I have another way. Like I, I'm a big Flash fan. Um, really? But, yes. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I love for, for the most was the fact that, especially that I became a Flash fan this late in life, right? And it's the idea of there's this new origin story that just came out this year. Mm. And it blew my brains off. <laughs> That's great. Like, like it's a crazy. Like, I just picked up an origin story for Harley Quinn that yeah. came out in DC Black Label, and it's phenomenal. Yeah. Like, like, and and we and we all know the story, you know. And it's like it's all about the voice. It's all about so, how you tell the story, you know. Yep. So I can't wait for the next Superman origin story, but I am gonna say this: they got they got big shoes to to. They got big it, shoes to fill. For sure, yep. for sure. Yep. But Brandon, man, it's been amazing having you on to talk about all this. Awesome. I know we've been kind of you know, dancing around doing this for a while. We finally made the time to do it. And uh, I think we should do this again sometime. What do you think? We should. Yeah. We definitely so, should. Brandon, I know if people want to hear your passionate ranting. I know there's another place they can do it. Why didn't you tell them? <laughs> So me and my buddy Isaac from Sweden. Isaac Wolf. 
Um, so we have an anime podcast called The Amateur Otaku. Um, the Amateur Otaku podcast is available everywhere. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, even though nobody listens there. And like, there's so many places that you can listen to it. We also have a YouTube channel that's ever growing where you can go um, catch the podcast there. Um, I'm also working very close to Wobam Entertainment and bringing them back into different different things and working on a podcast. So we got a lot of great stuff going on. Nice. And um, I also have a new music channel where I'm working on original music and stuff like that. So uh, what's the name of the channel? So <laughs> so it's called Lexus Lex and Sona, and it's I'm working on an EP that I'm going to be recording very soon. Check out this guy. Yeah. And how can people find you over on the Twitter? At the Scarlet Fan Fifty Two on Twitter, at the Scarlet Fan Fifty Two on Instagram, and Brandon Alvarado on Facebook. All right, so uh, thank you, Brandon. Until we meet again, you're the man, the Superman. And that is the Fanboy Podcast for this week. Stay tuned. I'll be back next week with episode one hundred and nineteen, and somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, For those of you who like when I talk wrestling, there's going to be a kind of spinoff of this show that is wrestling-centric. That's right. Next week, there will be an episode of The Wrestling Fanboy, and it's going to go up on YouTube, and I'm going to release it as a bonus episode here on the Fanboy Podcast main feed. So if you see it uh, on your feed and you're not a wrestling fan, feel free to bypass it. It's not going to be replacing episode 119 next week, but it's going to be in addition to episode 119 next week. So keep your eyes and ears open for the wrestling fanboy. I don't think it's going to be as long as this show, but I think, you know, I'm kind of planning basically every, maybe every two weeks or so, releasing a a half hour to 45 minute breakdown on what's going on in the wrestling world and what it makes me think and feel because things in that arena are insanely exciting right now and i need some place to talk about it so uh keep an eye out for that wrestling fans all five of you who listen to me and for everyone else who's listening thank you please take some time to go and leave me a five-star review It would really help the show to grow and continue to find new eyes and ears out there. Thanks again for spending this last, I don't know, hour and almost 40 minutes with me. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.